You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Unlock them with your fingerprint or your face recognition. Turn them on, however you do that. Get your Bibles out, and we're going to continue our series in Romans. We're going to finish up Romans chapter 5 today. And I heard an interview this week that uh, really struck a chord with me and reminded me of what we're talking about this week. It's an interview with Bruce Springsteen, the great musician, Bruce Springsteen, written some of the most famous, most popular songs uh, our country has ever known, known over the whole world. And what was so fascinating to me was he was talking about songwriting. He was talking about how he came to write these different songs. And he said, you know what? People, they come, they want to talk to me about these songs, but they always assume that I was writing these songs as me, that it was me in those songs. But he said, if you think about it, that makes no sense. I've written all these songs about being a blue-collar working man. He said, I've never worked an honest day in my life. All I've ever done is sing and play the guitar. I've never been a blue-collar worker. So he said, when I wrote these songs, I wasn't writing as myself. I was writing as my dad. I was writing those songs because I wanted to understand my father. I, it was me trying to sort out and work out who he was because I knew if I was ever going to understand myself, first I had to understand him. This morning in Romans 5, Paul's writing to help you understand yourself. But he says the only way, the only way you will ever really understand yourself is by understanding someone else. You know, as we journey through Romans, we've seen kind of Paul put on different hats. The first four chapters, he was a theologian, and he was making this argument of theology, specifically the theology of justification by faith, how you and I can be right before God, not based on the things we do, but based on faith. And we saw last week, he, he was showing the impact of that theology, how it gives us access to God, how it gives us grace with God, how it gives us joy in God, how it gives us peace with God. Well, today, Paul's putting on yet another hat, a little bit different hat. Today, Paul is writing as a historian. In fact, really, you could say as a biographer. He's going to tell us some people's stories. He's going to tell us two people's stories in particular. And then he's going to make this bold claim that, you know what, these two stories, it's really the only two stories that exist. See, Here's what Paul's going to say. When it comes to your relationship with God, your eternal destiny, who you are on a deepest level, you and I, we don't write our own story. We don't. In fact, the only thing Paul's going to say, the only thing that we can do is choose. Which story do you want to belong to? With that said, let's stand again one more time. Let's stand for the reading of God's words. Romans 5, verse 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, 
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You may be seated. So Adam starts with the first biography, the first story, and it's Adam's story. He's saying this is the, through Adam, Adam's story is the history of doom and gloom. It's why the first four chapters of Romans was really not much fun at all. It's why he was at length to describe the depth of our sin problem. And he's telling us, this is how it happened. This is how it all unfolded. Let me tell you the story. And it's really a three-part story. You can see it as a a three-step chain reaction. Here's the first step. Sin entered through Adam. Adam had one prohibition, one thing not to do. But what did he do? He doubted God, and he rebelled against that one prohibition. So that's step one. Step two, death came. Now, when the Bible talks about death as a result of sin, it's talking about it in two ways. The first is physical death. This is why we all experience death and why we all hate it and why we all resist it and why we all do everything we can to avoid it. Death is the enemy. You and I were not created for it. It's not supposed to be this way, but it's here, and it reigns over all of us. It also means spiritual death, and the Bible's spiritual death is separation from God, the most tragic consequence of the fall. The deepest punishment was when we were expelled from the garden and we were removed from God's presence. From that moment on, it's been a dumpster fire around here. When we are out of His presence, we don't know what we're doing. And we can't do it. And so death reigns when we're apart from him. So that's step two. So sin comes, then death comes, and then step three, death and sin spread everywhere to everyone, all universal. And what he means here, he means more than just Adam introduced the idea of sin. He's saying here, Adam introduced a new, sinister, dark power into the world. He talks about it with a language of like, almost like a king. It's a a dark, evil king who reigns and rules. In fact, you can trace how, how Paul talks about sin in Romans, and he talks about the fact that it reigns 
repeatedly. He talks about that it's obeyed, it, it pays wages, it seizes opportunities, it deceives, and it kills. So the picture here is a, is a dark force that asserts its power over all creation. Everything, everything that comes into contact with it, it's bent, it's broken, it becomes twisted, it becomes tarnished. This dark power, it, it undoes what was created good, and it brings death. It brings death to life, it brings death to relationships, it brings death to nature, it brings death to our personalities, it brings death to everything that it touches. And so he says in verse 12, he wraps up verse 12, this is how much it spread. It spread so much that all sinned. We all joined in. See, it turns out this dark forest, this sin and death, it spread not against our will, but with it. We love it. We desire it. We turn to it for life, for meaning, for hope, for peace, all the things that we should turn to God for. And so just like Adam, we doubt God. Just like Adam, we rebel against his instructions. And so the picture is almost we, we took Adam's sin and we just stacked all of ours right on top of it. You know what this means? This means it's touched you too. This dark power of sin has touched you too. It means you are its victim and a perpetrator. All in one. That's the picture he's painting. And this is the story, this is the biography of why you're broken and you can't seem to fix it. Of why we're all, all of us so messed up and why no matter how hard we try, you can't quite be that good person that you want to be. You try to learn everything you can learn, you try all the new experiences. No matter how many times you change your church, change your friends, change your marriage, change your hometown, it doesn't fix it. Our whole culture is broken, despite our wealth, despite our technology, despite our education, despite no matter which leaders we elect, we still can't seem to fix all that's broken in the world. In fact, isn't it true that just every day we seem to just uncover new brokenness everywhere we look? See, we, all, we all know this is true, but man, we will argue with Paul about his explanation of why. What Paul is talking about here is, in theological terms, something called, we call federal headship. It's where we get doctrines like original sin, and, or you may hear it called inherited sin. Here's what a federal head, in, in theological, philosophical terms, a philo, uh, I'll get it out eventually, y'all. A federal head is a person who, through a covenant relationship, represents or stands in for, for someone else. So it's a person who represents or stands in for someone else. Else. And so Paul is saying this has two parts. Adam is our federal head, means two things. Number one, it means death spreads because we are like Adam. We sin like him. If we were in the garden, we wouldn't have done any different. We disobey God. We doubt him, just like Adam did. But it means more than that. It also means we are in Adam. That it, when he sinned, so did we. That's why he says in verse 12, when he says, all sinned, he's not talking about a bunch of different events. He's talking about one event. There's some sense that we all sinned in that one act in the garden. That's why it says in verse 18, through one trespass, 
Condemnation came to all of us. Your story was written by someone else. That's what federal headship means. Now, I can almost hear the screaming of that's not fair in your minds right now. I know, it doesn't sound fair at all. In our culture, in our world, we struggle with this because we're an individualistic culture. We're in a culture that says, you know what, I should rise or fall based on what I do and based alone on what I do. And that's all that should matter. Even if, for better or worse, even if I mess it up, that's on me, right? And if I succeed, that for sure should be based on me. We, we tend to see each person as autonomous. They make their own decisions. They suffer their own consequences, to which I would just respond, really? Well, tell me why you decided to be born where you were born. Of course you didn't decide that. The reality is there's all kinds of things in our life that affect us deeply that we have no say in. So many cultures take a different view. Most other cultures take a different view. The Bible takes a different view. The Bible sees the individual as part of a whole and that, that no individual is complete and independent in and of themselves. The cultures Paul is writing to would have understood that you can have a relationship with a person so that whatever that a person achieves or loses, you achieve or lose. Whatever they decide is your decision. Whatever consequences they suffer are your consequences. Now, we have a few examples of this in our culture. It's not totally, uh, we don't have nothing to go on for this. Think of our representative government. We have a representative government, right? We elect officials, and then they go, and they make decisions that represent us. For example, they can go declare war. We don't get a vote on that. We don't get a say on that. They go, they decide, and when they declare war, you are at war. We don't get to individually say, wait, 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 well, I'm not at war. He decided that, so he's the only one at war. No, no, no. When they make the decision, we are all at war. We see this in negotiations. So every few years, every major sports league will enter some kind of collective bargaining or through some sort of labor unions, and, and they'll have a representative. And that representative speaks for every individual on that side, so that the decisions they make are binding for everyone. So we have some of those examples, but I think we have some closer ones if we think about it. What about your family? Have you ever seen your kids suffer when you mess up? They didn't get a vote on that, did they? No. But we're all, we're connected in some ways, aren't we? But I know, I listen, I know, I know it's still hard for us to understand. Many people still think it's not fair, which I would say, offer a better explanation. Offer a better explanation for the universal sin and brokenness we see all around us. Why is it that sinning is the one thing I don't have to teach my kids? They just all know. I hear, I hear that may be the case for you as well. Why is it all people in all places at all times have chosen to sin over and over and over again? This is not a new debate. The church has had this debate for years, even centuries. In fact, the early church, there was an early church theologian, a guy named Pelagius, and he said this. He said, listen, Adam has no power over me. All my sin, it's all voluntary. I choose. I write my own story. He went to St. Augustine, he had, a, he had a great response. He simply said, okay, Plagius, if all sin is voluntary, then why does everybody volunteer? Right? 
If it's such a free individual choice, then why does every individual keep choosing it, especially with such tragic consequences? So I said, you know what the ultimate proof of federal headship is? Look around. Look inside. This dark power has invaded everything. Possibly the most obvious truth in existence, yet we resist it. And in fact, it can be very, very offensive to us at times. And I I think I know why. I think the truth is we all want our chance in the garden. We say, give me a chance. Let me choose. And maybe I can get it right. Or maybe I'll at least do better than Adam did. Whatever though it is, we want to write our own story. Let me decide. Paul shoots down this possibility. He, He knows what we're thinking. He shoots it down twice. Verse 13 and into 14, Paul points out that sin and death reigned, he says, from Adam to Moses. So what's he talking about there, from Adam to Moses? He's talking about before the law came. Before we had all the pages and pages of law and instruction, death was reigning. And what he's doing is he's anticipating an argument. He's anticipating an argument from people who say, I want to write my own story. Maybe I can get it right. Give me a chance. Okay? And the, the argument goes like this. Well, now, today, we have the law. We have the fuller revelation. We have the instructions. We have more knowledge. We are better educated. Poor Adam, you know, he just didn't know as much as we know today. He wasn't as fully evolved. He wasn't as knowledgeable. But we have a much better chance because we know much, so much more than he did. Okay. Well, then Paul revisits it in verse 20. And he says, well, yeah, you know what? The law did make a difference. The law made a difference, all right, but it's not the difference you're thinking of. In fact, he says, when the formal law came through Moses, sin got more visible. It became worse. The law multiplied the dark power. Didn't push it away. Paul's saying, see, it's not, it's not ignorance that prevents us from obeying God. You and I, we don't have an information problem, and we don't need to just try harder. Adam only had one law, just one. What makes us think we're going to do better with more and more and more laws? In fact, you, Paul, you know Paul's going to go on to say? He's going to say, the dark power of sin, he will actually use those laws to spread his reign and his rule even farther to make you more prideful, to make you more selfish, to make you more distrusting of God. And that's why he says in verse 14, nevertheless, no matter what, death reigned. When we didn't have all the information to reign, when we had all the right information, it reigned. He's trying to get across, men and women, that death and sin reign just as much over ignorant people as educated people. Just as much over nice people as over cruel people. Just as much over religious people as irreligious people. The truth is, we've gotten ourselves into something that we cannot get out of. We need a rescue. Enter the second story. Enter the second biography, the story of Jesus. He picks it up in verse 14 through 17. He He begins to tell us about Jesus, and he starts off telling us, here's some ways the story of Jesus is different from the story of Adam. He gives us three contrasts. The first is this, a different motivation. In verse 15, he says, Adam 
His sin, his trespass, made us all suffer. It gave us all death. It was inherently a selfish act. Adam said, I want that fruit, and I want it now. And I don't care what God has said, and I don't care what the consequences are for everyone else. And so many suffered for what he wanted. Very different with Jesus' story, isn't it? Five times Paul repeats this phrase, free gift or free gift of grace. It's like he's doubling down on grace. Because it, all gifts are grace, right? That's what makes it a gift. And, and all grace is a gift. It's like he's saying it's a gift, gift, or it's grace upon grace, or it's free, free. He's emphasizing that Adam took, and we all suffered. What did Jesus do? Jesus gave, and we are all blessed with a free gift of grace. Adam's story was selfish. Jesus' story is sacrificial. It's not just different motivation. There's also different results in these two stories. The Adam story is a story of death, isn't it? In his story, death reigns, nevertheless. That's why it says in verse 15, through one trespass, many died. We all died. And in verse 16, he, he illustrates what this death looks like. It looks like judgment. It looks like condemnation. He's talking about legal guilt. We're standing before the judge, and there's no doubt what the verdict's going to be. We have no hope. We're dead. But Jesus is the story of life. Life in this context is justification. We've talked about this. Justification is you are found guilty. You were guilty. You did it, but you're declared righteous. So what about that legal guilt? All that punishment has been paid. But what about righteousness? God checks your account and all the funds are there. You have all the righteousness that you need. So in Jesus' story, death doesn't reign. He says, in Jesus' story, you reign in life through Jesus Christ. So there's a different uh, motivation. There's a different result. There's a different power. Paul is at pains here to illustrate how the power and the scope of Christ's work is far greater than Adam's. Twice he uses that phrase, how much more? Hey, let me tell you about Adam's story. And then when we get to Jesus' story, it's how much more? In verse 15, he says grace abounds. He uses that word a couple times, and, and it, it's almost like the English downplays it too much. The, we could translate it superabounded. It means enough, and there's plenty left over. It means more than enough. It means leftovers of grace. It means Christ's work cannot just cover. It can overwhelm and undo all the effects of Adam's work, plus some. It's not a fair fight. That's what Paul's saying. It's not a fair fight. The Adam story is all about justice, right? Condemnation. What, what does justice do? Justice gives out equal parts according to the trespass. An eye for an eye. A punish, the punishment fits the crime. We've all heard that. That's how it works with justice and condemnation. In Jesus' story, though, grace doesn't fit the crime. Grace overflows and abounds to 10, 100, 1,000, infinity times more than we need or deserve. So what Paul is wanting us to understand between these two stories here is, yes, Adam unleashed a dark power, but Jesus unleashed something even more powerful, grace. Grace is so powerful that it overwhelms sin, death, shame, guilt. 
And afterwards, all that's left is leftover grace. That's all that's left. These two stories are very different. Different motivation, different results, different power. But then what's interesting is he shifts and he's going to tell us how the stories are the same. Verse 18 through 21, he says, really, there's one main way these stories are the same. You know what it is? Federal headship. See, Paul wants us to understand federal headship, not just so we can understand sin. He wants us to understand it because it's our only way out. It's our only hope. He's saying, listen, before you shout, it's not fair. Pump the brakes because your only hope is in something that isn't fair. The story of another can become your story. What is true of someone else can become true of you. What is accomplished by another can be credited to you. That's why it says in the 14, Adam, he's just a type of one that's coming. A type is, it's an incomplete representation of something fuller that is coming later. So Paul's saying, Adam represents you. He wrote your story, but there's a greater author. There's one who can represent you in an even fuller and more powerful way. There is a better story out there. So he says in verse 19, by Jesus' obedience, you are made righteous. You are not the author of your own righteousness. See, Jesus doesn't simply remove the penalty for our sin. Wonderful as that is, he also obeys for us. He obeys as our representative throughout his life and especially in his death. So later on, Paul is going to talk about righteousness in in accounting terms. So being righteous, he's going to say, it's like having the necessary funds in your account. In Jesus' obedience, his work gets credited to your account. You know what that means? That means when God goes to check your account to see if you have funds in there that you need, you know what he's seeing in there? He's not seeing the times you told the truth. He's not seeing the times you helped an old lady across the road. He's not seeing the times you volunteered at church or the times you donated to a cause. No, 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 no. In your account, he sees Jesus in the garden praying, not my will but yours be done, Father. He sees Jesus in the desert, taking all the devil can throw at him, but resisting temptation. He sees Jesus loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving others as himself. That's what's in your account. See, you couldn't be obedient, so Jesus was obedient for you. You couldn't resist sin, so Jesus resisted it for you. His story can be your story. You don't have to die in Adam. You can live in Christ. So how do we do that? How do we live in Christ instead of die in Adam? I think there's really two things Paul is trying to get across to us in this passage. Number one is this. You're part of the problem too. You are part of the problem too. In your marriage, you're part of the problem too. At work, you're part of the problem too. With your kids, with your church, you're part of the problem too. You know, I had this coach in high school. Anytime he met someone new, anytime we had a new kid, you always knew the first question he was going to ask. He was always going to go to that kid and he was going to ask, hey, what's the American pastime? Okay? So let's play along. Let's do it. I'll be the coach. 
You're, you know, everyone else who gives a normal answer, response to that question. So you say, hey, everybody, what's the American pastime? No, it's passing the blame. That's what he always said. He would, you know, get you. And you don't know how to respond to that, but he was right. Passing the blame. I do that. You know, you do that. We all do that. We think, you know, all my problems, they're because of other people's sin, other circumstances, other brokenness. And here's the deal. When we think that, we're, we're usually not completely wrong, but at best, we're half right. See, Paul's not writing here so we can say, yeah, yeah, Paul, tell all those heathens how bad they are. No, he's writing, hoping you will realize that Adam's story is yours. The dark force of sin and death has touched you too. There's a great song by a group called Cayman's Call. Opening stanza goes like this. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I'll just say it. Don't blame the bullet for the wars you have sown. Don't blame the winner when you've forgotten your coat. When you make the same deals for 100 years and you want to make a change, you got to hold up the mirror and share in the blame. And I know, let's go, I know this is not the feel-good message of the year, why does Paul do is Paul doesn't want to heap on guilt. He doesn't want to make you feel hopeless. No, 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 quite the opposite. This is why this is so important. If you are ever going to understand the generosity of grace and how much you need it, how desperate you are for it, you first have to understand how big your problem is. That's what Paul wants to do. And so, hopefully when you realize that, you... You're ready for freedom from Adam's story. You want freedom from the dark power. You want to change, but what do you do? Well, here's what you do. You bring his story, the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his obedience, his righteousness. You bring it in to every inch and molecule of your life. You know, it's interesting, chapter 5, it's, it's really a bridge between justification and sanctification. So in chapter 6, next week we'll see, Paul's going to start talking about sanctification. And so that's, that's the, the difference between how we are saved and how we live today. That's the connection. And on that bridge, Paul is talking about federal headship. Isn't that interesting? Here's what he's saying. Paul is saying, Jesus' story, it's not just how you're saved. It's how you change. I love this quote by Paul Saul, who's a great writer, he said this about this connection between being saved and, and living it out. He said, growth is the process of receiving God's word of justification in new areas of our being. It's the carrying of good news to the unevangelized territories of our personal being. The process is long as life itself, reaching to darker continents within ourselves than we ever knew existed. Sanctification is justification by extension. I love how he puts that, and isn't it true? We all have unevangelized parts of our hearts, don't we? And the only way we change is the superabounding, overflowing grace of God going into those dark continents of our being. But we don't want that so often. So often we want three things to do. We want ethical prescriptions. We want lists. We want demands for holiness. We want rules and willpower. We want to write our own story. But you can't. You can't overcome the dark power of sin. Only one thing can. Grace. 
You want to know how you change? Here's how you change. We're going to do an exercise to remind us all how we change. Here's what we're going to do. I want everyone to participate with me, okay? I'm going to count to three, and on three, we're going to all hold our breath. Not for long, just for like two minutes. That's it. I'm kidding, not two minutes. We'll do 20 seconds, okay? I'll count to 20 up here so we know it's done and you can exhale if you want to be an overachiever. Maybe you'll learn even more about grace. You can keep, hey, feel free to hold your breath as long as you want to. The rest of us are going to hold it for 20 seconds, okay? So as I'm counting to three, you're going to want to take a big breath in, okay? I'm going to be watching, no cheating, no puffing your cheeks out while you breathe through your nose. I know that trick, everybody, okay? All right, we ready? Here we go. One, two, three. <gasps> Okay. Oh, take a big breath. I thought it was good. I saw some red faces. Not too many of you were cheating. Well done. <laughs> now, my guess is, until that moment, it's probably been a while since you thought about oxygen, hadn't it? Yet, you are absolutely dependent on it. It is the most immediate need of every cell in your body. And when you don't have it, for just 20 seconds, your body starts to scream out for it. When you finally breathe it in, listen, down to the smallest cells of your body, they're changed and they come to life. Men and women, grace is oxygen for your soul. You know what we need to change, to overcome the dark power? You know what we need? We need to bring grace in. We need to breathe it in as deeply as we can. You need to breathe grace into your marriage. You need to breathe it in to your self-loathing, to your feeling sorry for yourself. You need to breathe it in to your need to forgive. You need to breathe it into your sin. And as grace comes in, you know what you find out? You are loved and righteous while you're mean, while you're sinning while you're lying, while you're gossiping, while you're selfish, while you're bitter, while you're all of those things, you are loved and you are righteous. Because it's never been about you. You're found in the story of another. And when Jesus' story of grace settles in, when you breathe it in deeply to the deepest parts of your being, that's how you change and that's how you live. I want to close our service today by us celebrating together a picture that Jesus gave us himself of how we can remind ourselves of his grace that comes by his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.